Okay, if you would go ahead and turn in your Bibles to James 5. Um, back to James 5. Of course, that's where we were beginning last week. Um, and this week we're going to be in verses, just uh, two verses. And that will be uh, verses 7 through 8. So if you look at James chapter 5, verses 7 through 8, uh, that will be our text for this evening's study. Uh, I'm going to go ahead and read from verse 1 through to the end of our text, so verse 8, if you would hear now the word of God. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for your miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches are corrupted, and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver are corroded, and their corrosion will be a witness against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have heaped up treasure in the last days. Indeed, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, cry out. And the cries of the reapers have reached the ears of the Lord of Sabaoth. You have lived on the earth in pleasure and luxury. You have fattened your hearts as in a day of slaughter. You have condemned. You have murdered the just. He does not resist you. And then our text. Therefore, be patient. Brethren, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, waiting patiently for it until it receives the early and latter rain. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Let's pray. Our glorious God in heaven, we Thank you once more for bringing us together in your providence uh, for yet another midweek service, Wednesday night prayer meeting, where we can come together and peer into your word and contemplate these things together and enter into a time of prayer and intercession on behalf of one another and and fellowship together. Uh, Lord, we pray that you would guide us and direct us and give us your wisdom from above. In Jesus' name, amen. So after pronouncing this condemnation, which is what it essentially amounts to in verses 1 through 6, he pronounces this condemnation of those who would abuse their wealth in this kind of abusive subjugation of God's people uh, out of greed and other vices that we could no doubt list. Uh, James goes ahead and moves on and he turns to the hope of those who might find themselves oppressed. So he turns now, the tone changes quite a bit uh, between verse 6 and verse 7, and you have him once more addressing the brethren. We see that in verse 7, and now he's addressing uh, brothers. He's addressing those who are true believers who may be the victims of the men uh, whom he addresses in verses 1 through 6 or who just generally throughout the course of the Christian life are subjugated to various forms of oppression and trials and tribulation and so on. These are excuses or reasons or points of persuasiveness for endurance or perseverance. So the hope, the point of persuasion for the oppressed to continue persevering patiently, even under their circumstances, even under their circumstances of suffering, is the glorious hope of the coming of Christ. We see that two times really in verses 7 through 8. The coming of Christ 
serves as the hope, the point of persuasion, and the motivation for these dear saints. Now, I think to understand how James is, is using this language and, and for what purpose he's using this language, uh, we need to look at three things. We're going to look at three things this evening. This will be our three points that we're going to study. And the first is this, the nature of the coming of Christ. And I'll, I'll specify that even more. The nature of the coming of Christ within this context. Right? The nature of the coming of Christ within this context. So really there we're going to deal with how is James using the coming of Christ to encourage the saints. Secondly, secondly, we're going to look at the coming of Christ and how it persuades us to be patient. The coming of Christ and how it persuades us to be patient or motivates us or convinces us or encourages us. Any of those words would work. To be patient. And then thirdly, we'll look at the coming of Christ and how it persuades us to strength. Persuades us to strength or persuades us to establishment in the things of God. All right, so we're going to begin with the nature of the coming of Christ. Let me just read the text again so that you can see these two uses of the coming of Christ in verse 7 and verse 8 respectively. Therefore, be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. And then he uses an example, see how the farmer, an illustration, see how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, waiting patiently for it until it receives the early and latter rain. And then verse 8, we see it used again. You also be patient, establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. So the coming of our Lord is a wondrously involved theme throughout the whole of the Bible. And I think one could make the case easily that the coming of the Lord is a theme from Genesis 3 on to the book of Revelation. And the sad thing about the coming of the Lord is you wouldn't know it today with all the disagreements about the coming of the Lord, but the coming of the Lord was a revelatory fact in the early church that was intended to unify and encourage the early church. It was a doctrine that was meant to bring together, to encourage, and to form peace and comfort within the hearts of the saints. Unfortunately, today it's become uh, a point of uh, contention. One might even say a point of hobbyist contention, where it's almost fun to disagree about eschatology uh, or about the coming of the Lord. But originally and initially and throughout Scripture, we find that the doctrine of the coming of the Lord is intended to comfort, to bring peace, and to bring unity among the brethren. The word that is behind that word for coming is that word parousia, which you may be familiar with and perhaps have read it or have heard it in Bible study settings uh, and so forth or in sermons. But it means the coming of Christ. And it was intended to comfort, sustain, persuade, and strengthen the saints together as they sojourned through the trials of persecution and oppression, which is what James has just mentioned in verses 1 through 6. I mean, look at how it's used. Verses 1 through 6, you have these 
individuals who are apparently using their authority and their resources to oppress the saints. We had a little bit of a discussion last week uh, about whether these are uh, false converts within the church or whether they're perhaps outside of the church. Uh, I don't think it matters to make the substantive point. Uh, I, I, I tend to think that these are uh, those who appear to be in the church and they are using their power and authority within that context to abuse the saints. But immediately after verses 1 through 6, as dark and as perilous as that seems, the persecution by oppressors, the way James comforts and encourages his brethren is with the coming of the Lord. So as we look at Christ's coming, remember that it was never intended to be a doctrine that we use to beat each other over the head with or win debates with and all of that. It seems to be that way today, but it, it wasn't. And it wasn't a hobbyist's doctrine either. Uh, in the first century, the doctrine of the coming of Christ was a life or death reality. Either saints were going to be encouraged to live their lives and even to die for the Lord Jesus Christ based on this eschatological hope, or they weren't. It was that central and it was that important. It's a unifying, peace-giving doctrine. It's also a very involved doctrine, very complex. Again, I said it, you know, you could trace it all the way from Genesis to Revelation, biblically and thematically. It spans all of Scripture. It's, a, it's alluded to all over the place. It's explicitly mentioned all over the place. It's too massive of a subject for one mind to work out. And of course, that explains in part why there's so many disagreements about it. Everyone has their own nuanced understanding of the minutiae of the doctrine. But I'll just say a few things about the parousia, about the coming of Christ. It'll be as simple as possible, and I think just in the spirit of the text that we have here. There are a couple of things that, um, that James says about the coming of Christ. The first, one of the things that I want to say by way of qualification before we get into it, um, the word for coming or parousia in the Greek, that's a Greek term for that, for that term, for that word in English, it just means presence. All right, so if you think of the coming of the Lord as the presence of the Lord, or if you think of the parousia as the presence of Christ, that phrase coming of the Lord, it could just be rendered presence of the Lord, All right, lexically. And the second thing, James uses the parousia or the presence of Christ, or we could say the coming of Christ, in two ways in this text. He uses it in two ways. All right? In the first way, he uses it as the goal. It's very forward-looking. It's very future. You can think of it as a finish line. And there is all sorts of celebration and prizes and rest at the finish line. But, of course, uh, like all finish lines, this finish line uh, lays ahead. All right? It's the goal. So that's one of the ways in which James uses the coming of Christ. He uses it like the goal. It's the finish line that stands at the end of our patience and our perseverance and our endurance. Okay, so it's a goal. And that's how he uses it in verse 7. The second way he uses it is as a present reality. The coming of the Lord is at hand. 
more clearly, we might render that text, the presence of the Lord has drawn near. It's in the perfect tense. So the presence of the Lord has drawn near. So I think what James is doing here is he's pointing out a very popular theme between Paul and John, and here we see it in James, throughout the New Testament, and it's found in the Old Testament as well, this notion of the already and not yet of the coming of Christ. All right, the already and the not yet. And if you're note takers, I'll go ahead and write that up here like this. All right, the already not yet aspects of the coming of Christ. I think that's what he's doing here. Douglas Moo comments on this passage. He says, I think this is helpful. He says, what is crucial is to understand this nearness in the appropriate temporal framework of salvation history. And by that, he means you need to understand it within the context of the whole of the redemptive narrative. The whole of the history of redemption. And then he goes on, he says, with the death and resurrection of Jesus and pouring out of the spirit, the last days, quote unquote, have been inaugurated. There's something of their reality that has already begun. And then he says, this final age of salvation will find its climax in the return of Christ in glory. Consummation, which is forward looking and future. Already, not yet. So there's this already not yet reality in relation to the parousia, the coming of Christ. And James was here using both aspects, the already and the not yet, to encourage and persuade God's people in two distinct areas. He's encouraging them in two distinct areas, namely patience and strength. Now, for those who were chomping at the bit to get into eschatology, when I mentioned eschatology and when I mentioned the parousia and when I mentioned the coming of Christ, well, you might be disappointed because I'm going to switch immediately to how James was using the coming of Christ to encourage the people of God. The first thing he does to encourage the people of God is he uses the coming of Christ to encourage or persuade us unto patience or long, suf- or long suffering or perseverance, we might even say. So, and, and in verse 7, we see the way in which he does this is he uses the not yet, the future, the forward-looking aspect of the coming of Christ or the parousia to persuade Christians toward patience or perseverance. Again, seeing this, this coming of Christ, this presence of Christ as the finish line, and that encourage us, encourages us to persevere, to continue, to endure through the sufferings that were mentioned back in verses 1 through 6. All right, the, the opposition and the oppression mentioned back in 1 through 6. So what do we do as Christians when we face various trials and tribulations and temptations and uh, oppressions and persecutions? Well, we're encouraged. And we're encouraged and we take hope in the fact that the presence of the Lord is at the end. It's at the end of all this. And so the text says, it begins, therefore, and we know that when a biblical author uses that word, therefore, we have to ask, what's the therefore, therefore, he's drawing some kind of a conclusion from what's already been said. And I could just put it this way, because the judgment of those oppressors, that seems promised back in verses one through six, their judgment is sure and certain because of that, be patient, James says. 
Be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. So the future aspect of the coming of the Lord is the point at which the oppressors and the persecutors of the church will be judged. That's when Christ comes back and he judges those who are haters of God, who remain outside of Christ, and he vindicates, of course, his people and himself on that day. So James persuades us to be patient using the parousia as a point of encouragement. That which is our sublime comfort and our blessed hope on the one hand is the condemnation and judgment of the wicked on the other. Think about that for a moment. The same glory that will appear and comfort the saints will be the same glory that will terrify the enemies of God and will work out in their judgment. It's an amazing thing to consider. So we have a great reason to be patient and to persevere in the face of hardship. Why? Because the end goal, the finish line of our perseverance is the parousia, the presence of Christ with us. And we look for the day upon which we, we shall see him as he is, to use the language of 1 John chapter 3, verse 2. The day upon which we shall see him as he is, the presence of Christ with us. And because we will see him as he is, we have every reason to be patient and to endure throughout this age. Then James goes on, he draws an illustration in the latter half of verse 7. He writes, see how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, waiting patiently for it until it receives the early and latter rain. This is a a very basic illustration. Uh, It's very intuitive. Uh, Even if you don't live in an agrarian society, which most of us don't, you can still somewhat relate to this if you've ever planted a flower or if you've ever planted a a vegetable or if you've ever planted uh, some kind of a fruit tree you realize that they all have their seasons and they all have their, their times at which they are but sproutlings or saplings or, or, little, or little sprouts and then they grow up and then they eventually yield some kind of fruit. Right? They eventually yield some kind of fruit. Even in the case of a flower, the fruit would be the blossom, right? the bloom of the flower and the petals finally unfold when spring rolls around. See how the farmer waits. So the farmer sows the seed, plants the seed, and he expects a yield. The seed's planted. Because the seed is planted, he expects a yield. It's almost in his mind. He's not stressing about it. it. He's not worried about it. In his mind, this is what happens every year. There's going to be a yield. And so he just waits for it patiently. He doesn't go out and try to, to, to pick any kind of vegetable or any kind of crop Uh, prematurely he knows that there's a right time to do that so he just waits patiently he expects this yield and because he expects it because it's in nature it's kind of promised to him in a sense he's willing to wait and he doesn't only wait through the early rains the early rains is something that happens uh when you first plant your crops um seasonally the rain comes soon to water the crops and then uh and then there's a later rain that happens and he waits for the later rain as well 
He doesn't become anxious. He doesn't go out there and start digging things up before the time is right. He waits. He's patient. Similarly, you transfer the analogy to the Christian life, which is what James is inviting us to do by using it as an illustration. God has planted the gospel seed in us. He's planted the gospel seed in his people, which is going to grow up into resurrection life eventually, at which point we will see him as he is. And so knowing that and and being certain of that should be cause for patience and endurance, knowing what the end game is. The seed is sown, we're certain of its fruition, and so we persevere to the end. All of that, everything we just mentioned, is motivated by a future hope, something which continues to lie in the future from our purview. But then James uses the nearness of our Lord's presence to persuade us unto strength, establishment. It's language of steadfastness. And that brings us to our third point. So he's using the future aspect to encourage the saints to patience and perseverance. Now he's going to use the already aspect. He's already used the not yet aspect or the future aspect to encourage perseverance. Now he's going to use the already aspect, a present reality. The coming of Christ persuades us to strength. And the exhortation or the admonishment is establish your hearts. In fact, he reiterates the importance of patience. In verse 8, you also be patient. That's what he said at the beginning of verse 7. But he says it again after the illustration. You also, like the farmer, he says, be patient. Establish your hearts. We could render it strengthen your hearts. Consider how the presence of the Lord right now is already near us and intimately in many ways involved in our lives. And there there are two ways we can think of this, beloved. Two ways in which we can think about the nearness of the presence of Christ. The first way is this, and it's obvious throughout the whole New Testament, Christ dwells in us right now through his Holy Spirit. Christ dwells in us right now through his Holy Spirit. Paul writes, Do you not know that you are the temple of of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? 1 Corinthians 3.16 Then even just in James, back in chapter 4, verse 8. Back in chapter 4, verse 8, James has already been using this kind of language. Um, He's just bringing bringing it out into the forefront here, but he's he's been using this language back in 4.8. James uses the same language of nearness when he says, draw near in gizo in the Greek. It's this idea of nearness. It's the same word used here in verses uh, 7 and 8. In fact, it's the same verse. It's it's the same term that's used in um, uh, verse 8 with at hand is or is at hand. It's this idea of nearness back in chapter 4, verse 8. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. The insinuation there is obviously that as Christians, we have access to God. You can't say to an unbeliever who is outside of Christ, draw near to God. It wouldn't make sense. Um, The only way in which it makes sense to draw near to God is to say such to those who have access to God. And there's only one group of people in this world 
that have access to God. And it's those who are in Christ. Hebrews chapter 7 verse 9 says, or verse 19 says, For the law made nothing perfect. On the other hand, there is the bringing in of a better hope through which we draw near to God. Again, the same kind of language. So there's a nearness of the saints to God or of God to the saints. Both aspects are used throughout the New Testament. But then there's the other, there's another, there's one more way we can think about this as well. It seems like there's an urgency in James's words. And, and the urgency is not, you know, there's always been this debate uh, between conservative and liberal scholars. Liberal scholars will say, well, it looks like Jesus' disciples and maybe even Jesus himself thought that Jesus was going to come back within the first century. And they'll say, but he was wrong. He didn't come back in the first century. And so his disciples were a surprise. By the time you get to the first century, the end of the first century and the second century and the third century, you see Christians trying to push out the coming of the Lord to some future time. So the liberal scholar will say, well, look, Jesus was wrong. He's a false prophet. He thought he was coming back. His, he, he bamboozled all his disciples to think he was coming back at some point. And, and look, alas, he didn't. But I don't think that's what James is saying. And I don't think that's what any place in the Bible is saying. I don't think the Bible sells us a false bill of goods. I don't think James is selling us a false bill of goods. I don't think that there's been a single false prophecy uttered by our Lord Jesus or any of his apostles. And so we can move that to the side. And we can say that there are several ways in which we can consider this coming of our Lord that the liberal scholars do not consider. One, for instance, is that Christ comes at our death. Isn't there a presence of Christ when we die to us as individual believers? Paul tells us that at death, while the body dies, the spirit is with God. We are confident, yes, he says in 2 Corinthians 5, 8, well, please rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. There's a closeness of the parousia, the coming that James exploits here in order to persuade us to spiritual strength and heart steadfastness and establishment, which is necessary for perseverance. We must have the presence of Christ having drawn near to us in order to persevere. There's a sense in which we depend on it and could do nothing apart from it if there wasn't some kind of intimate relation between Christ and his people. So notice how James uses the future aspect of the coming of Christ, which is yet to happen. Right? When we will see him as he is, that hasn't happened yet. When final judgment will be issued, when resurrection glory will burst upon the scene. James uses that and says, that's the finish line. Persevere. That's the not yet. Persevere unto it. By the grace of God. So he uses that as a means to persuade us, to persuade his audience to keep moving forward, even while the heavy hand of oppression is upon them. And then he uses the present presence, the present presence, the already of Christ having drawn near to us as a way to establish our hearts. 
Christ is in us. He's with us. And so we ought to be established in him. This whole thing is a means. The coming of our Lord and these two aspects. It's a means to encourage the saints. To unify them and to bring peace into their hearts while they're experiencing oppression. Now, the, the, the American church doesn't so much struggle with oppression or the churches in America don't so much struggle with the same kind of oppression that was being experienced in the first century. We have a great deal of luxury and we have a great deal of time to concern ourselves with things that perhaps if we were oppressed like Christians in the first century or persecuted like Christians in the first century, we would deem to be perhaps not meaningless, but not worth fighting each other over. And our encouragement to one another would be along the lines of look to the finish line where Christ is, where you will see him like he is. Right. The other encouragement would be, well, you have Christ and he has you. So stand fast, therefore, in the faith. All right. And I think that's what James is doing here for this for this audience and by extension for us as well. 